The art and science of democracy is the fulcrum on which our individual freedoms and collective benefit teeters on. It has never been in perfect balance. The multitudes of variables affects the way the balance swings. Those variables are constantly changing with each administration. Which way it swings depends on the people's awareness of the times and ultimately their vote and participation in the future of their society. It's Saturday, May 1st, 2021, and as usual, we're taking a look at the top stories that shook our world this week. There are some good news for the vaccinated crowd. Biden's spending reaches six trillions in 100 days. Uh, we're taking a look at the Senator Tim Scott's rebuttal, real-life cancel culture, and what does the accountability Twitter trend mean for us? <laughs> Welcome to Lifering, a podcast where we strive to provide you with a well-rounded review of what's going on in the world between Monday and Friday of this week. My name is Alex, and I'm joined by my friends, Vadim and Paul. How are you guys? Hey, hey. Hello. Vadim, how are you doing? Just trying to comprehend how it's already May. Time is slipping through our hands like so many grains of sand. And that was your daily <laughs> dose of Vadim poetry. <laughs> Paul? I'm doing fantastic. I'm glad to be here. It's been a long week, and I'm glad that it's the weekend. The, the forecast was saying that it's going to rain, but it didn't rain. And that's any time when it says it's going to rain and it doesn't, it's a good day in Washington. Well, let's pick up where we left off last week. So Brazil this week surpassed 400,000 deaths. So that's overall, like over the course of their pandemic. Consider that with the struggle in India, uh, that is currently half that number of deaths. Brazil is only second to United States, so they've, you know, they're coming up to the, you know, to beat the record. But in terms of vaccination, Brazil is only 7%, and now there's like a shortage of supply. Now, what's interesting about Brazil is that their president, Jair Bolsonaro, in many ways reminds me of Trump. So at first he denies the existence of the virus from the beginning, and, and you know, they didn't implement any national measures from the beginning. So it's kind of interesting to see this play out right now. I think the virus was under and overestimated by most countries, but it's interesting to observe how it's just not leaving. And especially in the countries that, you know, care less about Western political debates. Bolsonaro, for example, last week in a television interview on Friday, accused the governors of using lockdowns to suppress the public's right to freedom of movement and threatened to use military force to intervene. Now, Latin America is not doing well overall. Apparently, the outbreaks are surging in Colombia, Venezuela, and even Uruguay. Now, India is still in its uh, power descent stage. Uh, remember that climbing graph from previous week? Well, the rates are just climbing higher and higher. On Monday, the U.S. was considering sending millions of doses of surplus AstraZeneca vaccine to India. So we have apparently about 10 million, as you remember, awaiting FDA clearance, meaning the blood clotting issues, right? that we had. And then another 50 million will be ready uh, for export by June. Now, India's oxygen shortage and mass cremations uh, reminded me of the initial craziness we have heard about in Italy. Remember when the pandemic just broke out when, you know, they were struggling with uh, availability of morgues and, and hospitals. Anyway, so right now this problem, I mean, here in the United States, everything is, I guess, nice and pretty right now, right? We're, we're in a much better place. But out there, you know, in, in these other countries, it seems like COVID is just catching up with many of these countries with its second wave, if you will. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we have Israel. So here's a statement from BBC. Israel recorded uh, no new daily COVID-19 deaths on Friday for the first time in 10 months. So at that point, when they w were going into the, you know, 10 months ago, the country had enacted its strictest lockdown measures to curb the spread of coronavirus. But that's not the case now. Cases are plummeting, even as Israel has gradually been lifting restrictions, including an outdoor mask mandate. Uh, so far, the evidence strongly suggests that the decline is largely thanks to a swift and successful vaccine rollout. Israel has seen the highest vaccination rate in the world, and so here they provide the number 56% of the population has received two doses. Anyways, uh, here um, in our somewhat united states of America, new COVID infections fell roughly by 16% over the past uh, week. In Michigan, um, you know, they've been seeing a decline in cases. Both New York and Michigan uh, got a 30% drop. By now, nearly 145 million people have been vaccinated. So that's about 53% over the age of 16. Why I'm saying that is, remember Israel, 56%? And they have zero COVID. I mean, they're out of it pretty much at this point. We're 53 over the age of 16, 53% of people. So we're pretty close, but not. Was that two yet. vaccines? 53%. Oh, good point. Yeah. 
That's at least one vaccine. Um, another surprising thing is most unvaccinated Americans don't want the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I wonder why. According to the Washington uh, Post, only 22% of unvaccinated Americans were willing to get Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So as you know, last week they got approved back into business. But there's just even more hesitancy now. And just like the weeks before, the vaccine supply outpaced the diminishing demand. Yeah, I feel like if they're not slowing down on the supply and demand is not increasing in, in a remarkable sense, then we definitely should be making a priority to send it to India and places that are really affected. A personal story, if I made today, I was at Walmart and we were just walking, just doing our shopping. And then I heard a voice on the intercom and a lady was shouting, saying, hey, come to the pharmacy. We have free vaccine. If you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, please come like we the vaccine is free. It's right here. So it seems like there's an overabundance of vaccines going around. So so in West Virginia, for example, they say they will give young people a hundred dollar savings bond if they get vaccinated. So you can add that to your list of COVID vaccine incentives which now there are plenty of them. Well, it's crazy that they're trying to implement more of a campaign to target young people because, I mean, you hear about them, you know, asking parents to volunteer their children basically for uh, to help out in the development of this vaccine, even if children were never really at risk uh, in, a, in a significant sense. And so you think about it, are they like just playing Sims at this point with us? Now, there are two main announcements in the COVID world as it pertains to Americans. So the first one is fully vaccinated people can safely go maskless outside. According to Yahoo News, the CDC has put out an updated guidance on mask wearing. So fully vaccinated people can now stop wearing masks outdoors unless they're in a large crowd of strangers. Unvaccinated people can stop wearing masks when they're walking or exercising alone or while attending outdoor gatherings with fully vaccinated friends or family. Everyone should still wear a mask in crowded outdoor settings or anytime they're doing something indoors that involves contact with people outside their household. I thought it was funny that, you know, around strangers, you could, you, you know, you got to wear a mask. And, and around your friends, like it doesn't mention that your friends are vaccinated or your family is vaccinated. It says friends and family. So this is not just people in your household. You know, it proceeds by saying friends first. And so it, it, it's just kind of interesting to me that, I guess the virus behaves differently around strangers. Yeah, I'm just glad that the CDC finally came out and said this because the amount of people that I saw in their cars alone wearing a mask or we were taking a walk in the park and someone was by themselves walking with a mask on. And it's like, I feel like this is common sense. When you're not around people, you shouldn't be wearing a mask. But I'm glad this was said and hopefully um, people start, you know, actually having common sense and not when they're all alone they don't have to be wearing a mask yeah i mean is there a weaker look like let's be honest than being in your car and having your mask on or like running outside with the mask on like you're reducing the amount of air you breathe it's just sad to see so i think the point of virtue signaling is going to be even stronger now when you number one have enough vaccines for anybody to take at this point so if you're seeing someone in a mask it is likely it is most likely that they've taking the vaccine at this point because they're you know they're wearing a mask probably because they care about their health more than others and so at this point they've taken the vaccine and so here are the guidance that came out so if they're still wearing masks past this guidance at this point they're just doing it just to to make a statement yeah so and the second announcement was is that europe is opening up to vaccinated americans this summer uh, according to new york times the european union announced that american tourists who are fully vaccinated can visit countries in the block this summer if their vaccines are approved by the European Medicines Agency. I was looking forward to going to Israel, like, you know, right before COVID. And it seems like at this point, the only way you could do that is by taking the vaccine. Because yeah. I know they're scheduling tours already. They're, uh, in May, I think they will be opening up. Israel is opening up for, for tourists. The the kind of frightening part to me is as if these countries like Europe is saying, you have to come, you can only come into our country if you get a vaccine. So how are they going to check it? It seems like there has to be a universal passport or like a vaccine passport where multiple countries can validate and say, okay, this means you are vaccinated. So because no one's going to take you at your word for it, right? Or no one's going to take you out a piece of paper. So it has to be something official. So in order to travel anywhere, will we need this vaccine passport even around the United States? So the real ID was was supposed to be in effect, what, October 1st, 2020? 
well, now it's been pushed to 2023, but that would be an example of, I guess, an ID which could carry your vaccine in it. So it's not going to violate any, you know, your your privacy or, or, or whatnot. It's just going to be a yes or no pass, whatever it is, right? But they're going to be able to probably put it in there. Well, a good place to do it, like, I mean, if I was doing it, was to put it, like, in your right hand, like, maybe on your wrist or maybe, like, on your or forehead. Maybe on the forehead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder why nobody's thought of that yet. <laughs> All right. So that's what's going on with the COVID uh, in the world as of this week. Moving on to the next important topic is Biden's 100 days uh, in the office, his his first, uh, what is it called, joint address to the Congress. Now, leading up, you know, to this joint address or, or in the past 100 days, here are the topics that came up in the media during the first few months of his administration. It was uh, tax, immigration, economy, gun control, environment, inequality, climate change, and specifically infrastructure. So these were top trending keywords, you know, in relation to Biden's policies, if you will. So here he is on Wednesday night uh, addressing a joint, uh, you know, session of Congress. Now, half of the House, you know, couldn't show up due to the restrictions. And it's kind of interesting because on January 6th, if you look at the, you know, when they were approving the electoral vote with Mike Pence, right, it was full Congress in session. And again, compare... January 6th numbers in the United States and right now when we're like, at a, you know, at our lowest, I guess, in, in, a, in this whole year. And yeah, but anyway, so half of the Congress was there. And if you remember his inaugural unity address, Biden's inaugural unity address, um, well, looking at it today, we're even more divided as ever. So in his speech, Biden highlighted how his administration took, up, took us all out of COVID. There was no mention of uh, Trump's Operation Warp Speed that ensured the lightning fast development of a vaccine. Uh, Biden sees, essentially, if you look at it, Biden sees the country in crisis. It's pandemic, it's economic crisis, racial crisis, and so on. He, he's basically saying that the country is an inflection point, and he's using this opportunity to remake, reshape, rebuild America with the liberal agenda. It's kind of interesting. You look at them sitting you know, there, including Kamala Harris behind him and Nancy Pelosi, and they've got their masks on. Now, they're fully vaccinated, right? So why would you sit there in masks, especially that they're, you know, relatively, you know, probably about six foot from one another. Why would they do this? So that they continue to tell us that that there is an ongoing threat. Mm -hmm. So the image of the crisis remains as we keep seeing uh, trillions upon trillions being, quote unquote, invested in big government. See, and that that plays an important role in this whole thing is that so long as there's a crisis, there's a job for the big government. And, and I like the phrasing invested when um, it, it wasn't their money to invest in the first place. They're taking money away from the taxpayers and then they're giving it back and they're calling it an investment. When realistically, all this money that they're taking is probably printed anyway. I don't think it's actual money that was around beforehand. So uh, Another topic that he touched upon was gun control. Uh, not surprisingly, he's looking you know, for bipartisanship and consensus in his plan to arrest the Second Amendment. Nothing has changed. He wants to ban the assault weapons and do some reforms and background checks. He also talked about wanting to ban 100-round magazines, which, if you think about it, like, who uses those? I mean, they could be used in some kind of, like, uh, uh, militia context. Like, for example, we see a lot of uh, Latin American countries are, uh, you know, ongoing guerrilla warfare situations. You know, in which case, why would anybody support that being taken away? It's like, I don't know. Almost like they're preemptively doing that. Uh, there, there's no uh, evidence behind it that any of these measures would reduce, you know, the number of shootings or the number of tragedies that keep happening in the United States. No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Alex. Like, just the fact that they were sitting on screen with their masks on, like, during this address to the Congress, um, just shows that they're still trying to keep up this image and instill fear into the viewer. Meanwhile, in the back end, they're trying to implement as many of these seemingly crazy things as possible to see how many policies they could put out there and what they can get away with. And and speaking of, you know, like of this crisis that they keep presenting to us, there is one crisis that is not really a crisis, and that's the question of immigration for them, right? It wasn't presented as a crisis, uh, maybe as a so-called crisis, but they're managing it. They, they've got it, you know, they, they have plans, I guess, to move forward. And one of the things that Biden said is that, hey, if you don't like my plan, I'm willing to see what you got to propose, but let's come together and push at least some things forward, he said, meaning let's push the things that I want to still push. 
but then you guys can come up with an extra plan that we can, you know, pass forward as well. But the border crisis is a national disaster that only grew worse over the last 100 days. And then the pinnacle, I guess, of his proposal was a another 1.8 trillion spending. Uh, it's called the American Families Plan. You've probably heard about it. It's a trillion dollars um, in spending on education and childcare over the t- next 10 years and about 800 billion in tax credits for middle and low income families. So about 200 million would be uh, earmarked for free universal preschool and about 109 billion would be used to provide free community college education. So basically everything's going to be free, right? But you're paying for it. Now, this is on top of the 1.9 trillion COVID relief law in the beginning, and then the 2.25 trillion infrastructure proposal. And if you add it all together, it's close to $6 trillion of new spending in the first 100 days of this presidency. Now, I think taxpayers will inevitably have to pay for this because, you know, in, in spending, he says the rich will pick up the tab. I doubt that big corporations will see this as, um, you know, like an insurmountable obstacle, I guess, in their continual chase after gains. Well, we were talking about this off air a little bit where uh, you have companies like Amazon, for example, that they're in the they're in the top of the one percent. And so if you think about it, they're competing with other companies that are just below them. And so they're going to be all for the higher tax rates because their profit margins are a little bit higher. So they actually, if they could suppress some of their competition, then they would get more market share and they would, you know, get more money in the in the end game. And, and it seems like it's just a circle, right? Because these big companies are the ones that are supporting Democrats as well. They're paying for the um, campaigns. They're paying for all of these different things. And so it seems like, hey, maybe they're working together. I mean, that might just be a conspiracy, but it sure <laughs> seems like it. It sure does. He also talked about unity, you know, but I think that that just fell so flat. Like I said, the country is even more divided than it has ever been. Uh, keep in mind that Biden won o- only by 40,000 votes in just three states. So that's a very small margin. Th- that should tell you that U.S. as a whole is just not ready for radical changes. What he didn't mention is packing the Supreme Court or making Washington, D.C. you know, a state. Also, the H.R. 1, the Democratic bill that's designed to destroy the integrity of our election and stifle free speech. Those things were not brought up because there are accomplishments that are happening behind scenes, like Paul was saying, while they're keeping our attention focused on the mask on our neighbor. By the way, I, I don't know if this is worth bringing up, just how crazy $1 trillion is because it's just a number that we hear, oh, the first one, whatever, like $2 trillion, $3 trillion, And like you mentioned, Alex, it was $6 trillion or like over $6 trillion, But $1 trillion is enough for every single American to get $3,400. That's more than all the stimulus checks combined that were given to Americans. That's just $1 trillion, And that's one-sixth of what was put out already. So the bulk of this money is going somewhere else. Yeah, essentially, we're, th- this money is going to make the government bigger, right? To give the government more power to fix the problems that apparently we as people can't fix. And the other part of it is that um, this is $6 trillion total now. We were what twenty. We're at this point we're twenty eight trillion in debt, and we thought that was a relatively big number, right? And so now it's just first a hundred days we got six trillion. Yeah, at this kind of pace we'll be uh, speaking quadrillions by the time Biden's done with his presidency. And here's the thing, and you probably heard this uh, as well. All it takes is for the next president to disagree with the policies, right? And then you're gonna have these half projects that are, have begun. Already, you know, and they're not that easy to stop. Uh, take uh, Obamacare, for example, you know, and trying to reverse all of that, right? Like it took it took him a while. Well, I think that's the that's his game plan with it, signing a bunch of executive orders because it's like uh, when it comes time to go back to normal, so to speak, then it would be like, well, would it really be less work than just keeping what we've already implemented? And then uh, I don't know. Again, so this is all, um, you know, well, when America has the highest GDP in the world and the policies that brought us to this point are low taxes, limited regulation, border enforcement, tight labor market, America first trade and foreign policy. And so when we're going to go and start picking at these variables, like I mentioned in the beginning of the show, when we start to change these policies and, well, we're just going to inject something into the economy that's going to turn everything on its head, you know, and considering what's happening right now at the border and uh, we're, we're... 
we're in a heap of a trouble if all of this, what he's been proposing, is actually going to become reality in the next few years. And moving on to our third story, here's the response of the only black Republican senator, Tim Scott of South Carolina, as he offered his rebuttal to President Biden's speech. Now, I have a few quotes that I pulled out from his speech. Um, He spoke passionately, probably way more passionately than Biden did. Biden spoke for an hour, an hour and four minutes. And it was just an hour and four minutes of reading. And there were times when people would clap and he'd get, he would just like raise his voice a bit. But for the, you know, for the majority of his speech, he, he remained just, it was his reading voice. Like, and also it seemed like he was tired. Senator Scott spoke only for like, what, 20-something minutes, 25 minutes? I don't have the exact count. But it was almost half, if not less, than Biden's speech. And yet he was able to fit a lot of points into the speech. Again, it wasn't something extraordinary, but he had a few important points. And one of them was uh, on the question of race. Uh, one of the things he said is, We've made tremendous progress, but powerful forces want to pull us apart. A hundred years ago, kids in classrooms were taught the color of their skin was their most important characteristic. And if they looked a certain way, they were inferior. Today, kids are being taught that the color of their skin defines them again. And if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. From colleges to corporations to our culture, people are making money and gaining power by pretending we haven't made any progress at all. By doubling down on the divisions, we've worked so hard to heal. You know this stuff is wrong. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. It's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination. And it's wrong to try to use our painful past to dishonestly shut down debates in the present. So that was kind of an interesting take because, again... Nobody's really listening to this guy. I mean, he's African-American. He's in a position of power. And he says that America is not racist. Alongside of that, he made a few comments that he personally did experience, you know, racism in private encounters, you know, in, in, in his daily life, if you will. But ultimately, he says America, you know, does not have systemic racism. There is no institutional racism. But that's a message that's not being heard by the left. So... He got a lot of criticism from the left for being kind of the token black guy. Uh, and it's like, oh, they chose him because of his skin color to use the, like, to, to give this rebuttal because it would obviously, like, it, it lands, like, the punches land better if it's spoken by someone who could speak from personal experience. Uh, but then you have this outrageous double standard that, um, you know, Joe Biden, uh, in the very first sentence of his speech was, you know, Madam Vice President and Madam House Speaker, or however he said it. And then he made a big deal about how nobody has ever said, you know, those words out loud in the in the State of Union address or whatever. And so it's it's just ridiculous how he he gets away with basically admitting that he that those women are there because they're women. And then, you know, you get a lot of backlash because the because a black guy is giving the rebuttal, which is hypocritical and sad. Yeah, wh- why are we paying attention to women, you know? Like, I know this was a historical moment, they said, but, like, to jump on their side, why are we even singling out the whole concept of women achieving this position now? Yeah, I mean, are Democrats trying to kind of remove the idea of a woman? I mean, you have uh, you have transgender women taking on a lot of uh, a lot of the credit, a lot of the great achievements that uh, that could be attributed to actual women. Right. And that's what I mean, is that it's a, it is a moment of celebration. But it kind of seems backwards for the Democrats to celebrate such a moment when they're trying to erase the boundaries between genders. Now, Representative Tim Scott is uh, leading the GOP efforts to pass police reform legislation in the wake of George Floyd's death. He called out Democrats for using the filibuster last year to block the police reform bill. And then this year... When they are in power, they're claiming the filibuster needs to be abolished because it's a Jim Crow relic. He said, The same filibuster that President Obama and President Biden praised when they were senators, the same filibuster that the Democrats used to kill my police reform bill last year, has not suddenly become a racist relic just because the shoe is now on the other foot. Race is not a political weapon to settle every issue the way one side wants. This was also a timely comment in, in, in the wake of 
you know, I, I looked this week at the stories in terms of like police and race. There were so many stories that we're not even going to share them during the lightning round. There are just way too many body cams being requested and way too many stories being brought up to attention, which are regular policing stories. You know, we've mentioned this before that the daily about three people are killed by police. I think somebody, something? somebody like receiving an Oscar or something was mm-hmm. like used that moment to basically say that, oh, today three people were shot. Tomorrow three people will be shot and, and so on and so forth. Right. And the idea is that these interactions are nothing new. Police are doing the same work they've been doing for years. Right. And while there might be some room for improvement, in general, police are, you know, doing their work. And yet, because the liberal agenda today wants to uproot everything and turn it on its head, uh, they're being target, targeted right now because it's, well, it's useful for their, uh, for their agenda and for their case. He also gave credit to Trump's administration for the Operation Warp Speed and the economic rebound that America is experiencing as a result of reopening, and this is important, as a result of reopening and not the restrictions. He did speak about schools and said that, hey, for a while, even the CDC came out and said that, you know, schools should reopen. Well, because we have school unions with liberal agenda, well, they've been holding back, you know, the whole idea of reopening schools for quite a while. He said, Most of all, I'm saddened that millions of kids have lost a year of learning when they could not afford to lose a single day. Locking vulnerable kids out of the classroom is locking adults out of their future. Our public schools should have reopened months ago. Other countries did. Private and religious schools did. Science has shown for months that schools are safe. But too often, powerful grown-ups set science aside, and kids like me were left behind. And of course, he commented on the ridiculous family plan. He said, our best future won't come from Washington schemes or socialist dreams. It will come from you the American people. And so he, you know, sort of put a spotlight on this whole idea that Biden's plan or Biden's speech in general was all about sponsoring the big government, expanding the big government, right? And it in turn will weaken the economy. And uh, well, that's not the way forward for growth for this country. I was just surprised at the response from the left. Um, Uncle Tim was trending on Twitter, which is a reference to Uncle Tom, which is a derogatory term for someone who sucked up to white slave owners. Also, many news anchors mentioned that Tim missed his opportunity to stand up to systemic racism. And maybe I just haven't found that source, but there seems like no one from the left actually broke down his arguments or listened to what he said. All they were saying is, hey, this guy is sucking up to the Republicans. This guy doesn't make any sense. But realistically, they didn't even look at what he was trying to say. I'm, I'm just surprised at that. And the left's response, you know, is in itself, I, I wonder if it's like double, ra- what is it, reverse racist, right? I mean, like, because literally this guy is just not going along with their agenda. He clearly is the person that they're trying to uplift and, you know, um, raise out of the systemic racism, if you will. And yet they won't listen to what the minority people of color, uh, you know, have to say in regards to the today's issues. And I think the way, you know, one of the quotes really summarizes uh, his whole commentary. And I think it summarizes really well the last 100 days of Biden's presidency. Thanks to our bipartisan work last year, job openings are rebounding. So why do we feel so divided? Anxious. A nation with so much cause for hope should not feel so heavy laden. A president who promised to bring us together should not be pushing agendas that tear us apart. All right, well, this is lightning round, and it's going to strike you down. We take a look at the stories that, well, didn't make it into our top five stories, but are still uh, important nevertheless. In the world uh, news stories, uh, I have two two interesting articles. One is... um, Following up a story that we covered last week, uh, Russian authorities suspend operations of Navalny offices. So this whole Novo- Alexei Navalny story and, you know, it, there, there was a big movement behind his, um, you know, corruption, exposing 
kind of effort that he led. And obviously they have offices, they have a whole team that produces these, these videos. Well, now Russian authorities on Monday ordered the offices of imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny to halt their activities pending what would be a landmark court ruling on whether they should be outlawed as an ex- extremist group. And then the other story that caught my attention was um, about John Kerry, former U.S. State Secretary, and the current special envoy on climate change. Uh, turns out he informed Iran's foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, of Israeli attacks on Iranian targets in Syria, New York Times reported on Sunday. The report cited a three-hour-long conversation between Zarif and an Iranian academic recorded as part of a history project and not intended for publication. According to New York Times and the Iran International, which obtained the tape, Kerry told Zarif that Jerusalem had conducted at least 200 attacks on Iranian assets in Syria. The news came in as a, as a surprise for Zarif, who is taped revealing that he is oftentimes kept out of the loop on Iran's own political course, saying that it is largely said by Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Why I think this article is interesting and important, because things have always been hot in the Middle East, and this is not helping. So turning to a little bit more of national news, well, particularly those of us that live in America, nearly 8% of Americans, or more than 5 million people, have failed to get their crucial second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, according to some federal health statistics. So the article that I read assumes, and so this is what it says, the worrisome figure comes as the result of U.S. residents fearing reported flu-like side effects from the follow-up immunization, the belief that they have enough immunity off of the first shot, and continuing vaccine shortages in some areas of the country. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, In other news in regards to travel, U.S. extends transit face mask requirements through September 13. So kind of expected, but now they're actually admitting that they're prolonging. So you have to wear masks on planes all the way through September? Yep. And I feel like they're going to extend that afterwards. In other news, Alabama Governor Kate Ivey has signed a law banning biological males from competing in girls' high school sports. Uh, We see this as a trend now. The Biden administration has given the green light to fly rainbow flags at U.S. embassies worldwide, if that wasn't enough reason for them to be chanting death to America in the Middle East. Like, it's one thing to do it in your own country. It's another thing to do it in embassies worldwide. If a country is fully against that, like in the Middle East, and they see these flags flying, uh, they're just going to tear them down and put U.S. citizens at risk. Yeah, there's countries where you can get publicly executed for being gay. I mean, I don't know what kind of message we want to be sending if, like, embassies are supposed to be kind of like a like a extended arm of diplomacy. So our next headline is Apple announces first East Coast campus in North Carolina. Apple is expanding spending in the U.S. and announced plans Monday to build its first East Coast campus in North Carolina. The iPhone maker is boosting U.S. spending to $430 billion over the next five years and doubling its hiring plans by 20,000 jobs. Apple says it's stepping up investment as the U.S. begins rebuilding from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, according to Cheddar News, medium pay for executives at the 300 largest U.S. public companies rose from $12.8 million in 2019 to $13.7 million last year, according to Wall Street Journal analysis. So, well, if you look at this, I mean, they never even had a pandemic. Um, They go on to say, given that equities make up a large chunk of executive compensation, CEOs can thank a booming stock market for the pay hike. Just ask the outgoing GameStop CEO George Sherman, whose exit agreement calls for an accelerated vesting of more than 1.1 million shares, which is worth around 169 million as of Friday's close. On the topic of race, like I mentioned before, there were a bunch of stories this week. But one that stood out to me is uh, from Idaho. Idaho Senate actually passed a bill this week uh, by the state house that would ban teaching of critical race theory in schools. Uh, the HB 377, which will now be sent to GOP Governor Brad Little for his signature, uh, states that no public institution or higher education, school district, and so on shall direct or otherwise compel students to personally affirm, adopt, or adhere 
to any of the following tenets, and then it you know it lists all of these critical theory um, statements. Now, Republican Senator Carl Crabtree, who sponsored the bill, said. This bill does not intend to prohibit discussion in an open and free way. It is a preventative measure. It does not indicate that we have a rampant problem in Idaho, but we don't want to get one. And so I think that's when, – when these kind of bills pass, they send a message, I guess, to the rest of the United States, you know, and oftentimes set a, an example. Take uh, the COVID passport bill, right? One state passes, another one picks it up. And again, this being a problem, especially in the liberal states, and we faced this question in our state in the past. A member of the Finnish parliament posted verses from Romans on social media that condemned homosexuality. And now she's on trial for three charges of hate speech. If convicted of these charges, she will face up to two years in prison. So the next story um, is on Monday night in New York radio host streamed herself on the Facebook asserting, I hate the police. She might have phrased that a little more vulgar, um, vulgarly. Then only hours after allegedly drove her Volkswagen, although she had a suspended license, into a New York police officer um, who was redirecting traffic, which obviously she killed him. um, And then she reportedly sped away and was later apprehended. So two hours later, police say her blood alcohol level was twice the legal limit when they actually apprehended her. So Tsakos, which was the police officer, was in full of reflective gear next to a marked police car with flashing lights and a series of cones. Authorities say she blew a 0.15, nearly double the legal limit. So interesting, definitely crazy, and apparently like some of the Facebook Um, live video was showing her just taking shots in her car just like rambling mumbling for like two hours straight and no one called the police no one reported this but for two hours the people that were watching just let this go on so definitely crazy i i think it shows that you know where this whole you know national insight you know what's interesting i think this whole racial movement right now that's happening it's really inciting violence and i think that it's partially responsible for this death death of this officer i guess there's there's just so much outrage about police brutality alleged police brutality that people are starting to take things into their own hands i mean obviously she was extremely drunk but uh the situation stands I, I think i agree though that like this hatred towards police could cause people to do this you know it's just yeah. like seeing poli- all police officers as bad as villains as just horrible horrible people and when you're in um altered state of mind the first thing that comes to mind is i hate the police let me go repay them for what they've done hopefully this is just a singular you know instance and we won't see more of these kind of stories there was another story, in fact, that came up that's very similar to uh, George Floyd's story. Authorities in Bay Area, city of Almeida, are facing growing outrage after a body camera video showed a police officer appearing to put a knee on the back of a 26-year-old Latino man for more than four minutes as he gasped for breath and eventually died. So this is a, there's an ongoing investigation and uh and the sheriff deputy um Ed Obayashi said there is going to be a very intensive inquiry on this it is rare that a non-threatening non-belligerent person ends up dying like this what was the officer's uh justification for detaining him the individual was not a threat to the officers again this is probably going to be one of those cases that is because of the precedent set by George Floyd's case now this might become you know another story that will be covered nationally. Walmart has expanded delivery to your fridge, according to an article from Bloomberg. And this has sparked conversations about uh, intrusiveness and privacy of your home. Okay, it's one thing to have food delivered to your door. And I, and I know that we probably would have been skeptical that delivery to your door w- would be a normal thing in you know 2021, like commonplace thing. But like delivering to your fridge, somebody like rummaging through your fridge or through your cupboards and placing things, you know, in its place. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting that That's you need sketchy. like you need like a search warrant for police to enter to your house, but you know, somebody from Walmart <laughs> can come and can stuff. go in and dig around in your fridge. That's I just weird. I I just imagine what's next, you know, like you're laying in bed, you don't want to go get up to get your remote. You call somebody, they come into your room, pick up your remote for you, hand it to you and you're like, "Oh, thanks, man." So Girl Scouts have seen a drop in demand for their cookies and they're trying to make up for it by 
uh, providing a little bit more convenient uh, delivery style. So there's a there's a drone that's been developed by Google. It looks kind of like an airplane, and it can carry cookies. So in this in this town of Christiansburg in Virginia, uh, they took a poll of the some of the people that were involved in the in these kind of experiments, and um, they seem to be pretty satisfied with it. Meaning among the people who received the cookies, like through the del- yeah. So this yeah. this project isn't really widespread. They're just they're just kind of trying it out in this town to see if it works. Yeah, I'm just wondering where it's going because we've heard Amazon talk about it a few years ago about drone delivery, and I supposedly they've been testing it out. I just don't know how. Like, when are we finally going to get to see it in our neighborhoods? Baby steps. So in a bit of entertainment news, we have Elon Musk to host Saturday Night Live on May eighth. So mark your calendars, folks. Um, So we all know him as the engineer who um, created Tesla, SpaceX. He's just a really, really brilliant man. But now he takes on Saturday Night Live. And so some people think he's not going to be funny enough. Other people think he's going to do very well. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Speaking of Elon Musk, uh, him and Jeff Bezos are in this space race right nowadays. And so they've been competing for this contract um, a now major NASA contract where they're basically trying to see who's going to build the spaceship to deliver astronauts to the moon as early as 2024. Well, Musk won that contract and Bezos is essentially not happy right now. And he filed a, um, what is it called? A protest with the Government Accountability Office accusing the National Aeronautics, I should just say, accusing NASA of moving the goalpost for contract bidders at the last minute. So in sports-related news, um, those of us that follow the NFL know that the draft was on the 29th of April, and obviously it goes a couple of days, and usually the first round is the most exciting, and we saw Trevor Lawrence went first. Um, But to cover the Seahawks, we know that our local team here in Washington did not have a first-round pick, but what they did is they celebrated Jamal Adams, who they picked up last year and traded away their first-round pick, so they were kind of pumped for that and they were celebrating that because he did a fantastic job in the second round they got Dwayne Eskridge from Michigan and so this story is actually really cool so Dwayne actually uh, showed text messages on Twitter where he messaged um, I think it was his friend and said that out of all the NFL teams the Seahawks treated me the best I really wish I'd go there and so he kind of like posted it on Twitter saying that like I got like with a contract with my favorite sports team. So I thought that was really cool. I'm excited to see where it goes. And that concludes our lightning round. So we have made it to the final part of our show where the next couple of stories that I wanted to share on the topic of real life cancellation. Seattle chocolate store Chocolati slammed on social media after an employee refused service on Tuesday afternoon to two Seattle police officers. So on Tuesday... A Seattle police officer and a trainee walked into Chocolati on North 45th Street in Wallington neighborhood on Tuesday afternoon. The officer was ignored by a white female employee with green streaks in her hair. When the officer got her attention, he asked for a box of chocolates and the employee said, No, I won't serve you. Chocolati has posted multiple times from its social media platforms supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, supporting defunding the police and other similar agenda. We know that on social media, cancellation is not a new thing. So for especially for conservative voices and any viewpoint that opposes the mobs or the liberals perspective, we know that police officers have experienced the same cancellation or maybe even just, you know, receiving some heat from social media. But I think it's one thing to say your viewpoints online, but it's a whole other thing to act and deny someone's service because they're a police officer, especially since police have had it hard already. The Seattle police chief quit recently. The budget has been cut by 20%. A lot of police officers are quitting and retiring, so much so that there hasn't been a shortage of police officers like there is now since the 1980s. Plus, police officers can't make any mistakes. If they do, then we all know that there will be riots. So now police officers don't even have the ability to buy from their local stores because of the hates towards them. I just think it's a really horrible time to be a police officer. And obviously, this is a very concerning situation. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's a tough circumstance for many different reasons, I think, because there's such a long stretch of time between when you need to kind of hire out of panic, uh, like we're seeing, you know, officers, some are retiring, some are transferring out. And uh, obviously, they're applying less and less because it's intimidating to, 
even think about policing in big cities at this point. And also this makes for difficult policing because the population is so much higher. I mean, Seattle has grown 33% since the year 2000. I don't think Chocolati is doing good because we need to respect the people that put their lives at risk every time they clock in. But if I was an officer, I'd, I think I'd prefer the kind of a passive aggressive attitude rather than violent confrontation. Like we have videos of people like taking cell phone videos, getting in officers' faces and be like, oh, like, what are you going to do? Like, it's bad, but lesser of two evils, you might say. What I think is, you know, concerning with this whole thing is like, it's one thing to disagree maybe with the policing system and maybe some of its aspects, but it's another thing to take somebody who's responsible for the social order and disrespect them. This is an example of how far the liberal media goes, that it not only addresses the problems, but it also starts to break down the order in the society. And in fact, I would say that this should probably be illegal. These are government workers. These are people who are there to ensure social order. If they had, if the left had a replacement for the policing, but until then, these are still the guys who ensure safety. It's disrespectful. Yeah, I, I feel like both of you have made valid points, Vadim. You mentioned that it doesn't seem like a big step, right? It's just like denying someone service. Obviously, there's a lot more violent things going on with police officers, but this is just a start. If this is allowed now, where is it going to go from here? And so obviously, the shop has the ability to deny anyone service. But now, if this is just because of the media, like Alex was saying, because of this mentality where people hate police, this is just going to be the start of it. And if now people don't stand up to it, then it's going to get a lot worse. So obviously there was an outrage on Twitter and social media. A lot of people thought this treatment of police was not fair. One Twitter user said, I'm sad that these delicious chocolates are made by those who preach patience, tolerance, acceptance, but yet do not follow what they preach. Jumping to conclusions about others does not help them with police reform. It just makes you look shallow and hateful, which I think is a very valid point. And, and I feel like we kind of summarized that with what we said. However, the real life cancellation story doesn't end here. More books have been canceled recently by publishers wary of the potential blowback that they could face for giving controversial figures or ideas a platform. So some publishers are facing pressure from frustrated employees to censor controversial authors or ideas. And by controversial authors or ideas, they basically mean conservative authors or conservative ideas. So for instance, employees at Simon & Schuster have filed a petition demanding that the book publisher cut ties with authors associated with the Trump administration. Former Vice President Mike Pence is explicitly named in the petition as someone the signatories believe the publisher should not work with. The petition has garnered 216 internal signatures and over 3,500 external supporters, including well-known black writers, but thankfully it was rejected by the company. So yet another story of real-life cancellation that comes to mind is that of Mike Lindell. I don't know if you've heard of um, MyPillow, which Mike Lindell is a conservative and Christian owner. So recently, Costco, among more than 20 other companies, have cut ties with MyPillow following Mike's claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from ex-president Donald Trump. So just from Costco dropping MyPillow products, the company is losing four to $10 million in sales, which is a very significant figure. You know, it's not just change. I know I kind of went over these last two stories quickly, but what are your thoughts on them? I think it's tedious at this point to keep comparing the 2016 and 2020 elections, but think about the amount of people that still claim that Trump stole it from Hillary. It's an outrageous double standard. And, you know, uh, because my pillow kind of made this statement and now the big companies that are marketing their products and distributing them are, you know, trying to cause them harm by, by canceling them, essentially. Bottom line, I guess, if you're in the market for a pillow, check out my pillow. I think it sets a dangerous precedent. It just happened to be right now that the big corporations, the big you know guys out there, they're siding with the current political climate. Imagine this being on the reverse, right? Uh, there would be a lot of outrage about it. It's kind of interesting that you would think that as a society, we're evolving, right? And we're becoming, I guess, more insightful into what's going on around us. But in this case, it seems like we're going back to the tribal mentality. You know, here's a group of liberal thinkers. And, and, and so anybody who thinks different from us, whether they're responsible for the uprising on January 6th or not, we're just going to group them all in the same category because they're not of our tribe. I think there's just this assumption that the liberal thinking is the de facto truth, like it's the truth, right? Because it's ideas that have popped up more recently. And so there's that bias towards it where it's like, oh, like this must be the, you know, this is the path forward where it hasn't survived the test of time at all, because we're just now starting to really implement them in government. And it's, it's shaping up to be awful. So to wrap these stories up, this real life cancellation is a lot more than people just hating on these companies, professions, or even individuals. 
on Twitter or some other social media. You know, it's not just hate anymore. Now we see that conservative voices or even people that go against the mob's beliefs are now now able to shop in some local stores, sell their products, or even publish books. My question is, where does this all end? Will this lead to conservative voices being shut down altogether, not being able to shop or sell because of their beliefs? Definitely scary times. I think it's now more than ever that we have to make sure we are right with God and we can stand up for what we believe in. Well, to our listeners, I would just like to say that it's a distinct honor to uh, present to you this final story for the day. Uh, We want to continue the topic of banning books and preemptive book burning, as was mentioned in Paul's Simon & Schuster bit. Uh, It raises many good questions. I would say rather than book burning, what we're witnessing is more similar to burning the dictionary, one word at a time. This is propagated by a culture of people with an extremely short attention span that looks to feed itself information as efficiently as possible. So if you have a question, just Google it. Uh, Keeping up with current events, listen to the soundbite, form the correct opinion, and move on. Uh, And so the most effective and memorable slogans are the dumbed-down, reductive, kind of non-sequiturs. So like you have those signs where it's like, science is real, Uh, you know, no human is illegal, all that stuff. So now the word science means something completely different because uh, there's this new trend, and so now there's new cultural context to it. Racism is another example. The way it is used today is far different uh, and speaks a different definition than it did even a few years ago because of new cultural context. Uh, One of the highest trending words on Twitter, especially since the unfolding of the Chauvin trial, is accountability. We mentioned LeBron tweeting the picture of the cops saying, you're next, hashtag accountability. That is one that we cannot afford to lose because it's clearly being abused to call attention to uh, moral positions, I guess, that are completely arbitrary. For example, any uh, in this case, you know, any altercation between a white cop and a black suspect is, uh, um, you know, it's painted to be an expression of some kind of white supremacy. But accountability is, in fact, an important part of our lives when we uh, apply it in the right places, of course, beginning with ourselves. So in these different cases, people are vying for three different positions. One is a pastor of a church, uh, another is a governor of a state, and still another is the president of the nation. And so our first story is a United Methodist Church in Bloomington, Illinois. They are undergoing a split over issues that deal with the LGBTQ community, and right on cue, one of the candidates for leadership uh, for the position of pastor in one of these two branches is a drag queen named Isaac Simmons. So this is an openly gay man that dresses up as a woman even during his sermons. Uh, It's bad enough that he already has a position on the church clergy, but now people are expected to cast votes in whether or not he should be a leader. What are some implications that you guys uh, think this could have? Like you mentioned, Vadim, it seems like a lot of vocabulary is changing nowadays. Lines are getting blurry and liberals now more than ever are pushing for things like polygamy, afterbirth abortion, and a lot of other things that a couple of years ago would seem unimaginable. However, while the liberals are pushing boundaries and unveiling these hidden agenda, Christians seem to not be standing up for what they believe in. On the contrary, they seem to be getting wishy-washy with their boundaries. So who will stand up? Now more than ever, the church needs to step up. Meanwhile, we have people like this, like this pastor that you're talking about. So I found a really cool quote from Abraham Lincoln, and it says this, Abraham Lincoln was fond of asking, if you call a dog's tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? Five, his audience would invariably answer. No, he would politely respond. The correct answer is four. Calling a tail a leg does not make it a leg. Same thing with this pastor. Calling him a Christian does not make him a Christian. This church is in a sad state already. I mean, at this point, does it matter who, like, does it matter who they vote in as a pastor? Like this church, you, the only the only good option left on the table for them is to really just walk away. Uh, you know, speaking of definitions, just because there's somebody who does sermons or pretends to do sermons does not make it a church. And so, yeah, if, if the people want a pastor, they won't find it in this church or in this gathering or this whatever. The, what do you even call this? Yeah. yeah, you guys bring up good points about boundaries and, uh, you know, the future of this church potentially. I think that uh, there's nothing left to do except watch it collapse on itself like a dying it's star. A I mean, I don't, I don't know about the worldwide church. Uh, if, you know, this particular congregation that allows drag queens to give sermons in their, uh, you know, in the pulpit on Sunday, if they'll be missed. And they're probably not sermons. 
let's transition into our the second case, I guess. So Governor Newsom uh, is potentially getting recalled from his office in California. Uh, California has not had a Republican governor since 1994, uh, but voters have been able to slide one in kind of through the same process of recall. And this was the very famous Arnold Schwarzenegger. This could be the second successful attempt. Uh, and there's a lot of contenders. Obviously, the one garnering the most attention is Caitlyn Jenner, formerly known as Bruce. Uh, the Kardashian show is in its last season, and now Caitlyn is searching uh, for uh, his attention fix in politics. He hasn't made any official announcement, but is already selling merch and basking in the internet fame. So this has created a lot of buzz, and many conservatives are divided about promoting this candidate. Uh, on the one hand, you could call the liberals transphobes and you have this smug kind of gotcha moment. Uh, on the other hand, you could be once and for all accepting and legitimizing Caitlyn's claim to womanhood. Looking at it, you know, like as the story developed, I guess, over the week, I don't think he stands a chance in being represented, you know, in being a popular conservative candidate. Like unless unless the liberals vote for him. But otherwise, I think this is, like you said, this is just a, an attention fix. He He hasn't released any of the his political views, actions he would take if he were to be elected. What, what, what would he do different? This literally was just like, oh, hey, I think, you know, my next step will be after Olympics and transgender um, achievements, accomplishments, I'll run for office. I'll yeah, I'm just very shocked that he's running as a Republican. I think I mentioned this the previous week, but I just don't see him holding up conservative values. And if he does, I feel like it's some kind of trick. I just looked up the, the website. Where Caitlyn for it's CaitlynJenner.com, mm. where um, I guess it's just the one page, and that's what I was referring to—that there's no policies here. Maybe you guys have heard of the expression that there are no atheists in foxholes, and so that implies that you know, in a time of war, when you're in a life or death situation, uh, a lot of the kind of pretenses that you hold, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of kind of prideful stances that you make, uh, they all kind of wash away, and uh, and that's something that happens when you're in a dire situation. Um, so to say that because we want a little bit of uh, clout, I guess, and you want to have the Republican Party in power, um, that this would be a point where you can compromise or um, and we can say like, oh, like, you know, yeah, maybe Caitlin thinks, yeah, maybe Caitlin is a man that wants to be a woman. But uh, at some point, we have to be honest about how much our values mean to us and when things like this can turn into a deal breaker. So for me, I think it's a deal breaker. Uh, it absolutely has to be a point of contention to vote a transgender person into office, no matter what party they claim to be. And so the third case is somebody who's already in office. Uh, it's already being addressed by... A, so there's a committee of Catholic bishops in the U.S. They're trying to decide whether or not to deny Joe Biden the Eucharist, essentially excommunicating him from the church, not letting him take part in communion until he uh, basically until he repents from his public positions about abortion, which the church is strongly against. And so uh, what do you guys think of this? Is it is it more important for our president to kind of carry the label of Christian, uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, no doubt, um, or call him out on it uh, and create and cause a scandal? I think it's important for the church to stand up for what we believe in. And I think the Catholic Church is making the right first step. Because if you think about it, people who look up to Biden and are Catholic or Christian as well, they see that Biden is supporting these things like abortion and like his other viewpoints. And they see him as Christian, so they think these viewpoints are okay for them to have as well. But now that if the church actually calls him out and excommunicates him, there is going to be like, an eye-opening event where they're like, wait, so what Biden is doing is not okay, and maybe he's just pretending to be Catholic or pretending to be Christian just so he could appeal to more voters. I definitely think there has to be opposition, and we should call out things for not what they seem, but for truly what they really are. I think this will be a test of, uh, I, I don't know what they're going to do. They're really in a tough spot here because they definitely need to say something, but they realize, we realize the implications of making a comment on a political figure and you know this might mean the catholic church will be like there might be a split now of politicians from the catholic church if they were to go one way or another and so i i think this is an interesting case of will they stand you know will they stand in this test or not i think there's a bit of a misunderstanding sometimes uh about the implications i guess of church discipline it doesn't always have to be this transparent you know a lot of t a lot of times uh 
being excommunicated from the church, we understand is, you know, it's a disciplinary measure, but it's not, uh, you know, I have a feeling that it's going to be depicted as some kind of death sentence, where um, obviously if he repents, uh, then he will be welcomed back into loving arms. Uh, And so I think that this is definitely a way to make a strong statement. Um, It's very intentional because a lot of times it is done in private. Um, And it's good for his soul. He doesn't have much time left. So the reason why these conversations are so important is that we we have a personal accountability. We're coming back to that word uh, on who we support and the values that we uphold and the values that sometimes, you know, sadly, we can be persuaded to ignore. Uh, For example, there's these established doctrinal positions on things like murder. So you have abortion, right? And then cross-dressing amongst other things. Um, In this climate where the word accountability is tossed around so much, uh, I'm all for personal accountability in the things that matter. So scripture says that each one of us will stand before the Lord and give an account uh, and that God will bring every deed into judgment along with every hidden thing, whether it be good or evil. And we can be sure in the triumph of good over evil and truth over lies. So to quote George Washington, truth will ultimately prevail where there is pains to bring it to light. Well, that's all for the stories this week. We are delighted that you have joined us for another episode of Life Ring. Please consider sharing it with a friend or family member that would benefit from a weekly overview of the current events from a conservative and Christian perspective. And as always, we'd like to remind you that there is no better news on any given day than the good news of Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world so that everyone who comes to him would know the truth. We encourage you to seek him if you haven't already. Thank you for listening to Life Ring and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 